ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. From a day trip, I went to Walla Walla, Washington with a bunch of friends. And um, for the listeners who don't know, Walla Walla is its big economic hub is the wine industry. Washington has a lot of vineyards and there's over like, I wouldn't be surprised if it's over 100 tasting rooms in downtown Walla Walla. So me and a bunch of friends went down there and behaved like ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> in the city so nice they named it twice yes and it, it was um just a, a lovely time with friends to catch up and relax a little bit so oh my god that's fantastic well while you have been having fun i have been working my booty off she's been getting to work i've been getting to work i've been practicing my patoot off <laughs> I promised myself, so uh, instead of going on our biannual cross-country road trip, Mm -hmm. I promised myself I was going to take this year off from traveling. Well, this holiday season off from traveling. And I was going to stay home and practice, and I have been doing it. And I tell you, I have not practiced this intensely since my doctorate. I am inspired and also exhausted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I have been doing 
the Pomodoro method, uh, which is 25 minute bursts um, with five minutes off in between. And I have been slowly working my way up to six of those sessions a day. So yeah, I have been spending my days in the practice room and I have also been recording in a practice planner. Oh my goodness. You've got all these practice goodies. Listen. Okay. So either the night before or the day of, I will make a plan of what pieces I want to get to. That's so smart. And so what it's preventing me from doing is spending a ton of time on one thing and neglecting another thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's seriously helping my peace of mind. And it's also like getting me excited to come back the next day. It's like, okay, if I'm getting a little burned out on this one piece, then I'm going to make sure that I, you know, prioritize some other pieces. And it's amazing what you can accomplish in 25 minutes. And just psychologically, having it be a 25-minute session makes it so much more palatable. Yeah, like manageable. Manageable, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also really like, instead of counting the hours, you know, instead of saying, okay, well, I got three hours in, it really, for some reason, makes me feel good to say I got six sessions in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's what I've been doing. And I have been so productive so productive. It's been awesome. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous. Because <laughs> um, I remember, I forget when our dish about burnout was, maybe earlier in the year or late summer or something. But I remember when we talked about it, I was like, yeah, I'm not dealing with that so much right now. And just feeling kind of like that person in class who's like, I don't watch TV. Or like, <laughs> you know what <laughs> Oh, that sounds like a you problem. Um, but if we were to record that dish now, I would have a lot to say because I'm officially feeling it. Um, it has been a little bit laborious to hold myself accountable for practice. And I too have a lot of repertoire for next semester. And it's just feeling a little like, I don't know, partway insurmountable, partway like it's been a long stretch of okay, get through this. And then immediately there's a big project waiting, get through this. There's immediately a big piece. And it just kind of feels like I love my instrument. I love playing, but I just like want an actual break. And I know it's not going to come for another 17, 18 weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying really hard. What I have been banking on is that in just a few days, I will fly to Tucson, Arizona for the make the glee bassoon symposium and both of the years that i attended that the last one was virtual it was the most rejuvenating inspiring uplifting musical experience i've ever had and so i'm just keeping my fingers crossed that third time is also a charm oh (laughs) yeah that will catapult me into kind of you know but it has been a struggle i want to be honest the past couple weeks of just like getting my mojo going and, and I've the been... holidays are like that too, you know, like the mm-hmm. holidays, it's so stop and start. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm learning part of what I'm learning, uh, new music for is this call for scores. And so it's like, like <laughs> just a 
lot of rep and a lot of brand new rep and a lot of modern rep. Very technical, very fast. Yeah. So I need to learn from you and what you're doing and, and make habits and plans and that type of stuff. But the motivation for the personal accountability to do so just hasn't, there hasn't been as much gas in that tank as was normally. So, yeah. you know, life is ebbs and flows. And I guess I'm just in a little bit of an ebb. Mm-hmm. Right now, well, I know you and I know you're doing the work anyway, but you're probably just not getting the satisfaction out of it that you normally would. Yeah, my personality is very much delighting in the work. Like, yeah. I always say sink your teeth in like I love mm-hmm. big projects. And yeah, I'm just I just find myself in a little bit of an ebb, but I'm glad you're not. Good for you. No. <laughs> But we are about, I do love, one thing I love is the clean slate of a new year. And mm-hmm. I am someone who totally buys into intention setting resolutions. I love to do it at the new year. I love to do it at the start of a new semester. Um, and so I thought we could talk a little bit about our resolutions, musical and otherwise. Are you mm-hmm. setting any 2023 resolutions this year? Yeah, my resolution is to keep up my practicing. Now that I know that this Pomodoro 25-minute thing works for me, I need to make absolutely sure that I'm doing those when the heat of the semester is high. (laughs) Because for me, that's the first thing to go. It's like, as a teacher, you start prioritizing everyone else's needs because you have to. You know, Mm -hmm. it is our jobs as teachers to make sure that the people around us are supported, our students and our colleagues. And like, that is a major, major portion of what we do. And we're so lucky to do it. But it's so easy to like, let the intensity of focus on our own projects and our own art kind of fall away. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that in this upcoming semester, I can make sure to schedule in these like bite-sized increments that over the course of the day lead to a successful practice day. So that's something new that I'm trying. I always say like, I'm going to practice more this semester, but I've never tried to just like do it in these 25 minute chunks. Yeah. I Well, and I feel like learning ourselves knowing who we are and how we work is just Mm -hmm. so much a part of this journey. Mm -hmm. What about you? So my first, one of them is going to make you laugh really hard. I know (laughs) I want to meditate every single day. I've so gotten off the bandwagon with that. And it's when I'm at my best, when I'm regular with my practice, I perform my best. I, react my best in everyday situations. Mm-hmm. So I have an app and for personal accountability, I don't care if it's seen as performative. I think just every day I'm going to post on my story when oh, I love it. I've done it. So Enneagram one, I love right. it so much. <laughs> Very typically me. Um, my resolution is to read every book on my shelf that I have purchased, but not yet read a word of Chris was like, so you're going to read 200 books this year? <laughs> <laughs> and one of them is The Artist's Way, which I know I spoke about on this podcast and was like, 
it's going to be so fabulous. And I'm going to do all the exercises and I just can't wait to report back. And I purchased it and I flipped through it and I went, isn't that lovely? And I put it on a shelf and I never thought about it again. And I have so many books that I just look at the spines and I go, yeah, I know exactly why I bought that book. Wonder what's inside. So, <laughs> okay. First of all, the artist way I got to about week seven. And in week seven, it was like, okay, now you're going to go back and read all of your morning pages that you've written. And I closed the book and I never cracked that spine open ever again. <laughs> Fair. Maybe I'll do it. In the, maybe I'll save that one for the summer. It's a summer project. It's a summer project for sure. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Um, but yeah, I've got these books that I purchased about Maori people that I wanted mm -hmm. to read before my trip. And yeah, just lots of good stuff. I know oh there's God, good stuff awesome. in there. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> I've already made the financial investment, so I might as well, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm excited about that resolution, even though it does elicit incredulous responses from everyone who knows me personally. But I'm going to prove y'all wrong, and I'm going to read these books. <laughs> well, our listeners have some amazing New Year's resolutions also. Yeah, we got a bunch of good stuff. Why don't you pick out a couple of their, your favorites to share? Okay. So Oliver says, performing my first recital. And oh my goodness, that's so exciting, Oliver. You're going to kill it. Full disclosure, Oliver was one of my students at the University of Idaho while I was doing uh, Javier's sabbatical replacement. So I oh can my God, that's so sweet. personally tell you that Oliver is a dedicated listener and also a very fine bassoonist and a very thoughtful young musician. So, mm, so Oliver is going to give an awesome recital. Love it. Um, okay. We are absolutely going to massacre this listener's name. So I'm terribly sorry as a person whose name gets massacred on the regular, but Bodil says, uh, not look at my phone while practicing. Um, do you have x-ray vision through the phone? And can you see me actively trying to not look at my phone while I'm practicing? <laughs> because <laughs> I'm struggling, especially in like practice sessions number five and six of the day. <laughs> When the mind's wandering a little bit or... I wonder what's happening on Instagram. Airplane moan can be your friend um, because mm -hmm. I just find that I get, like, if I get text messages, the self-control oh, to, yeah. like, not look at them or not respond. Impossible. Um, or just silencing certain chats when you're going into the practice room. But, yes, Airplane that is mode a, it is admirable resolution and it's gonna it's probably going to pay off in dividends absolutely and then brooke says create a consistent practice schedule perform more often and learn how to stay inspired that is so thoughtful and amazing and what a great resolution brooke <laughs> are you saying that because it's your exact resolution yes <laughs> Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. 
RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are so happy to welcome to the podcast, Ivy Ringel, principal bassoon of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Ivy. Thanks for having me today. We love to start by asking our guests how they came to their instruments. So can you tell us your origin story with the bassoon? Well, I actually started music as a violinist, oddly enough. I started playing violin when I was in elementary school. And then I went to a middle school without a strings program. And I played the clarinet for three months and I absolutely hated it. Thought it was boring. (laughs) Was going to quit playing the clarinet and just keep playing the violin. And then my band director at the time saw that I was bored and handed me a bassoon and the rest is history. So how did you go from being handed a bassoon to being a conservatory bound individual wanting to embark on a professional career. What happened in that space between? Well, I feel like I honestly came to pursuing music professionally pretty late as far as people go. I was just a band kid. I loved playing the bassoon. I liked practicing the bassoon and I liked practicing the violin. I was definitely one of those music kids who had a hard time practicing. Um, but I wasn't a very single-minded teenager. I mean, I could see myself doing a lot of other things. I applied to schools, some schools to be a math major and a music major, um, and had only applied to one normal conservatory, basically. Um, I applied to two other universities, which didn't work out. Um, And that was where I ended up going, more or less, because it was what made sense. And I wanted to do music, but I feel like it just kind of just kind of happened. And it wasn't till my last year of high school when I started doing college auditions that I really started, you know, realizing that I wanted to pursue music as a career. Could you talk us through your educational and training journey and how you got to the Indianapolis Symphony? Well, um, I went to, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, went to public school. And then um, for my undergraduate degree, I went to the Eastman School of Music in Rochester. And um, That was a really formative experience for me because it was kind of the first time I'd ever been around a group of really devoted musicians as like, you know, my peers. Um, I didn't grow up around that really at all. And that being at Eastman and just like really loving the environment that was so focused on music and on creativity and on sort of growing as a musician in a large scale sense, not just a bassoonist. I think like really solidified my desire to, you know, keep doing this professionally. Mm -hmm. And then after my undergraduate degree, I went to Rice for my master's. And then after um, finishing my master's degree at Rice, or actually 
kind of during my master's degree at Rice, I won a position as principal bassoon of the Atlanta Opera Orchestra. And I actually was flying back and forth my last semester between Atlanta and Houston to play productions in Atlanta and finish my degree in Houston. And I spent a year in Atlanta playing with the opera and freelancing everywhere. Um, and I'm so lucky to have gotten to play with so many great orchestras in the Southeast in that year where I was freelancing. And then I briefly won a position as the principal bassoon of the Des Moines Metro Opera, which I played for one season. And then I got the job here in Indy right about the same time. And I've been here since. We want to dig into your professional career and auditions and all that fun stuff. But before we leave your student days, you are one of the winners of the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition. And I would love to hear about that experience, um, especially your preparation. We have a lot of um, student listeners who are embarking on competitions and, you know, kind of... um, strategies and maybe what you learned uh, for them to have context? Well, as far as preparation goes, because I could talk about the competition as its own experience separately, but we can save that for later. As far as preparation goes, I think the main thing that I focused on um, was not only learning the music, you know, to a very high level to which I could be really comfortable despite nerves despite travel despite the competition itself being a new and unfamiliar experience but also trying to figure out how I could be true to my own spin of the pieces particularly because I think this is even more true now than it was in 2014 but a decent amount of the rep for the competition um, was totally unfamiliar to me with stuff that maybe wasn't part of the you know um, canon of bassoon solo repertoire if you will and I I think I really enjoyed looking at this these unfamiliar pieces and thinking about what can I do not only to like put my own spin on it but to like make every moment of this piece like the most effective possible thing and I think like that goes for just um, performing in general but especially in a competition setting the where they're where the judges are hearing you know many many people's different interpretations of the same works the more you can focus not only on playing well but also on staying true to like what really interests you about the specific work what are the moments that draw you in and like you know trying to capture those in your playing I feel like that made a big difference for me not only in you know doing well but feeling confident in my preparation okay now we want to hear about your competition experience (laughs) (laughs) okay well so Meg Quigley really changed my life. Um, when I won Meg Quigley, I was just in my second year of my undergraduate degree at Easton. And um, it was the first time I'd really put myself out there. Like I'd never taken a job audition. I had, I think I'd applied to festivals one year and didn't get into any festival but one. And that was the one I went to. Um Shout out to Jeff Robinson for helping me prepare for the Meg Quigley competition at Chautauqua my first year of college. He was amazingly supportive in that role. Um, but the competition itself was just such an empowering experience. And I think particularly being around a community of, you know, creative and like-minded um, female bassoonists and having, you know, never worked with a female teacher like it was really 
a special experience and I think it stuck with me going forward and made me feel more confident in my own abilities as a student and as a professional, I can say now, a while later. And, you know, I think that the work that Meg Quigley does is so unique, even amongst like all the instruments, like it really is a very, very special um, competition and now institution. So I'm curious about your strategy for auditioning when you are winning all these jobs, you know, (laughs) you seem young and fresh and, and you're getting out there and just slaying all of these auditions. So I'm so curious to hear about your preparation process and what you value when it comes to auditioning. I feel like my preparation process has been the same since the first audition I've ever taken. Um, And I was really fortunate as a student at Eastman to take a class that was like how to win an orchestral audition, I think literally was the name of the class. And it was just, it was, you know, basically you had to prepare a fake audition off of a real list that was pulled out of some orchestras. But it was this whole system of looking at a calendar, like starting eight weeks before the audition and just breaking down the repertoire into manageable day by day chunks. And that's more or less the approach that I've always taken. I've adapted it like um, since working now with my job, there's less time to practice than there was when I was a student auditioning, but it's still kind of the same thing. I sort all the repertoire by difficulty and whether I know it, I just go through it using basically like, like I make spreadsheets. I'm a very analytical person um, on like sorting all the music by difficulty and familiarity. And I just stick to the plan. And I mean, I think the hardest part of it is like trusting that the plan will work, (laughs) particularly when there are days where you're like, all right, my schedule says I'm going to practice for 30 minutes today. um, These excerpts. And then you're like 30 minutes a day. Can I really win an audition on 30 minutes a day? But like, I don't know. I think, um, I guess that's what I would emphasize about audition preparation. Like the most important thing is to have a plan and to trust in your plan. It's more important than what the plan is. Um, But it's so easy to look at all these giant lists that just, and just get so overwhelmed. But the more auditions you take, the more you can parse it out. And you're like, oh, I've played Scheherazade before. Oh, I know the marriage of Figaro pretty well. I need to clean those things like I always do, but it's manageable. It can feel less overwhelming just the more you can do it. So I feel like that that's how I approach auditioning. I've, um, I think I've just been fortunate to stumble across something that has worked for me and just keep doing it. And I think that's the most important thing to just keep doing the work and to trust that the work and the practicing is going to be enough to help you play well. Can we hear the story of you winning your position with the Indianapolis Symphony? Tell us about that day. Let us live vicariously through your successes. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I remember very unsig- insignificant things about that day, if you will. I, I don't remember much about the actual audition. I do remember there being not enough time between the um, semifinal and the final having to frankly find eight to five minutes kind of thing between the two rounds (laughs) but um 
I guess for me, the most memorable moment of the audition was um, when they announced the winner, they said something like, number one is the winner and number two is the runner up. And I've been runner up at several other auditions. And I think I just forgot my number for a second and thought that I was candidate number two. And then for a minute, I was like, huh? Um, And that was definitely a weird, a weird feeling after just announcing um, and having sat through a decent number of those announcements that more often than not didn't go my way. I just kind of had tuned out the announcement altogether. Um, so that moment really sticks with me. The other thing that I do remember about that audition that in hindsight, I found out occurred to every candidate in the finals was the only comment the music director at the ISO at the time gave all three finalists was, can you play the right of spring again, but can you start the first note even softer? And I remember being like, hmm, is that really what I want to do? <laughs> but at the time deciding, well, this could go really well or really badly, but I might as well like give it a shot. I don't think I've ever been able to play a high C so soft again, but it worked out. And maybe that was why I won the audition. <laughs> I was just like, come on. It, it did help like many months later to hear from my colleague in the orchestra. You know, he asked everyone that. And I'm like, okay, good. That makes me feel less bad. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I think it's a very surreal feeling. Um, and it is interesting how the brain tends to remember the the random moments, like eating a sandwich between the rounds more than the actual audition. <laughs> <laughs> so I, re- I related to something that you said, I'm in higher ed, I'm not in orchestral playing, but I too had a series of running up before I started to hear yes. And that period of time is, well, first of all, it's not always just a a confined period of time for everybody, right? But um, those experiences, I guess is a better way to say it. Those experiences can be as discouraging as they are encouraging in many ways. And I guess um, I'd like to hear some of your perspective on um, either what you learned or enduring and persevering like for a listener who is in currently in their uh phase of running up or hearing it's not you right now uh what would you tell that person the biggest thing i have to say is that it's all a matter of taste when you reach that point it's not a matter of ability it's not a matter of um preparation Something that a teacher of mine said to me after a um, particularly hard audition where I was in the finals but did not win was, um, you were chocolate and he was strawberry and today they picked strawberry. Mm. And as much as like, it's corny, it's true. It really is just a matter of you know, what they're looking for. And the last thing you want is to compromise on what you're bringing to the table in order to try to fit some mold of what they're looking for that you don't even know what it is preemptively anyways. So what you're talking about is, um, I I would love to connect it to the role of failure in our careers because, you know, everyone always says, well, if you're going to get into music, then you're going to have to get okay with rejection. And, you know, but it just feels so bad in the moment that 
when you get rejected or you fail, you're like, I didn't sign up for this, but really we did. So (laughs) um, (laughs) I would love to hear you maybe expand on that answer and address the role of failure in achieving such an amazing accomplishment, like winning this audition. Well, it's a really interesting thing what we've chosen being musicians, right? Because what we do with our careers is so personal in a way that like relatively few other professions capture. And I think that that's part of why failure and rejection that we experience in our musical careers is so devastating. Because it's like, not only have you not gotten this job and you know our competitive and difficult field you also are being told that like a part of who you are you're playing your artistry is not right or potentially even not good enough in one way or another so to me like I guess the way that I cope with the inevitability of rejection and failure in what we do is to understand why the intensity of it makes a lot of sense because Mm -hmm. it really it really does at the end of the day like this is so personal if we were I don't know working as a bank teller or something and didn't get called back for an interview it wouldn't likely would not be a identity crisis in the Mm -hmm. same way that not advancing to another round of an audition might be Mm -hmm. but you did win this audition and so now (laughs) (laughs) we want to hear about like okay so what is that like when it's like okay this is my gig and then you you know walk into your concert hall and start doing this job like um was there obviously you had worked um it sounds like you'd done quite a bit of uh opera playing um but was there any bit of a learning curve or talk to us about embracing your role your leadership role at your this position Oh, there was so much of a learning curve, um, despite my work with the Atlanta Opera and the Des Moines Metro Opera. Um, just playing every single week with the same players was both a luxury and a new challenge for me as far as a player and also just having the stamina to, I don't know, have good reads all the time somehow <laughs> or um, <laughs> to have the... Um, ability to kind of serve my role and be an effective colleague and leader regardless of how I felt on a particular day or regardless of if I had ever played that particular piece before even though all my colleagues had played it five times and I've never played it (laughs) Um, there was definitely a huge learning curve and there still is a huge learning curve I still feel like I'm getting used to this particularly with the with um, you know with COVID Um, I, I still feel like I'm relatively new despite having been with the ISO for three to four years now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like I found the biggest surprise and things I really didn't know about doing the job was the amount of non-playing work that might be involved in being a principal in an orchestra. Things like meeting with donors, like, um, being asked to serve in various positions on um, like musician players association kind of roles, um, 
being, you know, kind of a representative of the orchestra in a broader sense, I actually found doing that work even more of an adjustment than anything related to um, doing the job as a player. Can you tell us um, what is important to be a successful principal bassoonist? I don't know. I don't know that I have anything specific about being a successful principal, but I think the most important thing, regardless of your role in the orchestra, is to just really, really deeply care about your colleagues and about what you can bring to the table to help the orchestra be a better orchestra. And I feel like that's true regardless of what role you're in. But I feel like I've always looked at being a principal bassoonist as getting to wear many different hats. And one of them is sometimes leading the bassoon section. But, you know, bassoon is weird. Oftentimes I'm deferring to um, the second bassoon because they set the pitch, really. Um, so, I mean, it's a very, it's very much a collaborative role. And I think that for me, I found the more I could focus on the collaborative aspects of the role and the, the less I would be overwhelmed by the leadership aspects of the role. Um. Switching gears slightly, um, whenever we interview someone who studied with a, uh, you know, renowned pedagogue, we always like to ask them about their experience. And Benjamin Kamins is, you know, the most prolific American bassoon pedagogue of our time. And he is thankfully still living. He was actually on the podcast, but um, I would love to ask about your experience in studying with him and um, yeah, studying with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Caymans or, or Ben, I, I should say he, he, when I spoke to him a year ago, he got frustrated with me for still calling him Mr. Caymans four years <laughs> after I graduated. <laughs> um, <laughs> it just feels so wrong. It does. Yeah. It, well, it's, I, I still can't. Like, even with my high school teacher, Michael Burns, it's still Dr. Burns, this Dr. Burns, that. And the last time I studied with him was a decade ago. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, but where do you even start? I, I loved being at Rice, working with Mr. Caymans and the whole bassoon studio at Rice. It's such, it's such a unique environment, really, just in the amount of people around you kind of all focused on the subset of our field that is orchestral performance. And um, I really... I've already mentioned this. I'm a very analytical person. I, you know, like making spreadsheets and stuff to organize my audition prep. I really thrived off of the strong structure that he has at Rice. I mean, he does a fundamentals class. He does like a kind of standard etude regimen with everyone. And for me at the time, and honestly, probably still now, that was exactly what I needed to feel comfortable in my playing and to grow as a player. I also, the things I find myself thinking about Mr. Kamitz the most in my life and my career now relate to how much he, um, and this is perhaps different than some people who studied with him earlier in his career, but when I was there, he was extremely focused on minimizing tension in the body 
when playing, he was um, either in the middle of or had just completed his Alexander Technique teacher training. So a lot of my lessons were just about being able to play with ease in every sense of the word, musically, physically. And I feel like that's something I've taken with me um, going forward. That's been incredibly valuable, not only for helping stop any injuries that I've had along the way, but also um, for feeling just comfortable, comfortable on the job, comfortable playing. So I, I think I had a great experience working with, Mr. Caymans. I would love to ask you about the Rossini Club. What can you tell us about this project? Well, um, the Rossini Club actually is my partner, Nick Davies, who is a clarinetist primary project. Um, but together, the two of us run a um, week to two week chamber music festival on Nantucket Island. And we've been doing this for about I've been involved for about five years and he's been involved for a few years now, longer than that. And we do everything. We do all the admin. He does all the fundraising. I do all the behind the scenes kind of website scheduling, like contracting musicians. And we always try to bring out different musicians every year um, to play kind of curated programs that are a basically a combination of music kind of from the standard canon and oftentimes new commissions of works from living composers that we've been either particularly inspired by or that are a good fit for the groups that we're bringing out the particular year. It's a double read podcast. Um, so we'd like to get really nerdy and nitty gritty about reads. And we love to hear about like, you know, set up, what shape do you use? You have cane that you like, read routines, read advice. Um, if we were to peek inside your read room, what would we see and observe you doing? Well, please don't peek inside my read room. It's really <laughs> messy. <laughs> Nothing that happens in the read room. It's just messy and the cat's probably trying to chew on at least one tool that he should <laughs> but my read my read approach is um, very much influenced by my time studying with Ben Caymans. I pretty much do Hertzberg everything. Hertzberg shape, um, single barrel um, Popkin profiler. Um, I have a Greg James gouger that I finally got about six months ago after waiting for many years and that has changed my re read making life in a very positive direction just from the control of getting to you know sort the cane at that early of a stage it has really really improved my success ratio if you will in terms of just clipping stuff and having it work which has made a major difference to my life but I feel like I don't know with remaking I don't think of myself as a good, as a very good remaker, to be honest. And the first time I had to teach a read class, which I've only done a handful of times, I was incredibly nervous. And um, read making is one of those things that I guess I have two things to say about it. The more I can think about it as a science rather than an art, like the easier it is. 
for me because you really can realize that like it's really not much of it is guesswork it's just you're working with this organic material to see if it will play and sometimes it won't because after all you're trying to make a vegetable play music (laughs) like sometimes it's just not gonna work (laughs) that's the quote guard (laughs) yeah that's it we found it I must say that I don't think that that's original. I'm pretty sure I've heard that from someone else, but it has always stuck with me. <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think I'm a very serious read maker. I think I just make a lot of reads, really a lot of reads, like try to make over 300 reads a year, a lot of reads, and enough of them work that I have reads. And mm-hmm. I just kind of the same as the audition I just keep doing the work and (laughs) trust that it's going to work Mm -hmm. but I don't feel like maybe there I have met certain players and certain people who seem to have it way more figured out from an efficiency perspective than I do and I would definitely say to take advice from them over me (laughs) but um I think read making is one of those things that if you're not sure, if you just keep making reads, if you just keep doing it, it does get better. It does tend to, you tend to sort of just figure out certain things with the handiwork, with the crafting. Um, my my dad is actually a carpenter. So I oftentimes will be sitting there scraping my little tiny pieces of wood, thinking of him like working on a table. And I'm like, you know, really, this is just, it's kind of the same. And it's, I don't know, of playing a double reed instrument is so funny, right? Because we have to be so skilled at the skill that has nothing to do with playing our instruments, really. (laughs) It does, of course, but it's really, you know, it uses a totally different part of your brain. It uses a totally different set of body awareness and strengths and weaknesses. And um, I definitely feel like for me with reed making, I've just kind of had to accept that as long as I keep doing it, I'm going to be in decent shape, even though I'm not sure I'm ever going to feel like it really comes naturally to me. Can you tell us about your instrument and how it came into your life? Yeah. So um, my current bassoon um, came into my life in 2017. So five years ago. And prior to that, I was playing a Yamaha 821. And this is a funny story. So I have to share it. Um, that I had purchased three years prior, right after winning the Meg Quigley competition from Kathy McLean. And three years later, right after I finally bought my Heckle bassoon, Kathy McLean called me and said, would you like to sell me my Yamaha back? So I often just joke that I I loaned a Yamaha from Kathy McLean for three years. (laughs) 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 I bought the bassoon and then three years later returned it for like within a couple thousand dollars of what I had paid. So it was just, it was just a, it was just a loan. So (laughs) it was funny how that worked out. Um, But I found my bassoon actually after having given up on finding a heckle bassoon that both I could afford and that I liked um, at least a couple times over the past few years. And um, it was definitely like I, my first round of trying heckles, I think I tried around 15 bassoons and either they had some major flaw or they were just wildly outside of what I could scrape together 
and um, I didn't find anything. But this bassoon, my 12,000, which I bought in 2017, was the first instrument I tried, actually, the second round. <laughs> and it just worked. And it felt really just felt right. And funnily enough, this bassoon was um, from an estate sale. And Paul Nordby here in Indianapolis was the person who was selling it. So now that I'm back here in Indy, it's like, oh, my bassoon is home again. Oh. <laughs> um, so it's funny when I won the audition, I was like, hey, the bassoon's going back. <laughs> I, I don't know what estate it came from, unfortunately. I haven't ever been able to find anything about it in the Heckle book. The only thing I've ever found about my bassoon specifically is that it was sold in Vienna, but it's very flat. It's pitched at like right at 440, if anything, even a little below. So I've never really understood this one. I don't know. Must have been a very flat Viennese bassoonist who initially played it. I, I would love to know more about its story, but I don't, unfortunately. It was meant for you. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 lucky to have it and um I've been very happy with it um, since purchasing it. Can we hear a favorite memory from a past performance? Well, I guess probably the coolest performance I've ever played um, was playing Wozzeck with the Des Moines Metro Opera, which mm -hmm. the stage is, um, it's really hard to describe, but it's like a circle and the pit is like in the middle. And there was this scene in Wozzeck where Wozzeck was like raised and lowered, like strapped in this chair in and out of the orchestra pit while we're playing this crazy music. <laughs> and I just remember like looking up and of course this pit had a ceiling. So it was because the stage was right on top of it. So it was incredibly loud, as you can imagine, playing Wozzeck in a pit with only a tiny hole <laughs> to the stage. But I just remember seeing this chair raise and lower every night being like, wow, this is so cool. Like, um, so, I mean, that's probably one of my favorite memories. Um, my other um, favorite memory, I think, probably has to be just some of the concerts that um, the Indianapolis Symphony played in 2021 kind of right after we got back from being out for over a year um those were just really I can't unfortunately can't even remember the repertoire but it was just really really powerful to be back on stage with my colleagues making music again after like so long of just not being able to you know play together and be in our hall at all so I mean those concerts were very special too it feels surreal to be back without masks and to be in crowds of people again oh it, it really it really does and I think um it's definitely just like us as an orchestra the musicians of the Indianapolis Symphony went through a lot and um have you know been affected negatively a great deal as a result of the pandemic but I will say that there is you know nothing more positive than to get to be back playing with everyone. Mm -hmm. So if you can believe it, we are at our closing question, which is 
what advice do you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? I feel like I'm still a young musician myself. <laughs> so I feel a little funny answering this question, not not going to lie. But um, I guess the biggest thing, and this is not original advice, but this is something that um, Michael Burns said to me when I brought up in a lesson as a high school kid, wanting to be a musician myself. And I always thought it was really good. And he was just like, the first thing he said when I said that I wanted to do this professionally is he turned to me, gave me a very intense stare and said, do you like practicing? And I said, yes. And he was like, right answer. (laughs) (laughs) And I think what he was getting at is basically aspire to do this. It's all about enjoying the process, enjoying the work itself. I mean, doing this professionally, um, I feel so privileged to be in the role that I'm in. But I do think that um, enjoying the journey, enjoying, or at least um, finding contentment in um, the time spent contemplating how you're going to play your scales that morning is really, really important if you're going to go into this career because so much of the work is so um, often so solitary and so... um, demanding mentally and the really rewarding moments are incredible but the typical day is a lot of practicing and making reads and that's great too but you have to be the kind of person who really likes that ivy what a wonderful hour thank you so much for talking with us on double read dish we are so happy to be able to share this inspiring interview with all of our listeners we appreciate you Well, thank you so much for having me. And it's been fun for me too. And I am privileged to get to speak about my experiences with everyone listening. So thank you all for what you do here. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We know you did. We hope you had a fabulous new year. We hope that your resolutions you're going to kill it. And um, if you're going to be at Meg quickly, come say hi, come give me a hug, come like tell me to go practice. And uh, yeah, let's get our mojo back together. Who's going to be on the next episode? The next episode features the wonderful Mary Lindsay Bailey, assistant professor of oboe at the University of Alabama. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go my greens. <laughs>